We're going to get into the Word of God this morning. Amen. Um, happy summer, y'all. Uh, it is summer. I was, uh, my family were gone last weekend. Um, I did tune in later and hear Marvin's message was so good. Um, but we were on the lake um, for a couple days, celebrating the fourth and our wedding anniversary. Had a good time. Missed y'all. Um, but we're going to jump into the Word. Um, there's a lot of news out there right now in our world. A lot of news. Uh, I check the headlines, I think, almost every day on my phone. And I'm, not glad, I'm not sure if I'm glad or mad about that. Um, but I want to tell you this. The, here's the best, best news of all. Are you ready? Jesus is king, and he's coming back really soon. That is the best news. That is our, our blessed hope. And it's really what everyone wants. Everyone wants Jesus to be king. They don't know it because they don't understand him. But, if they, but what every human heart is longing for is Jesus in charge. We long for the lordship of Jesus. And we as believers see, know, and understand that. And so we're in our series on the coming of the Son of Man. Um, and we're going to be looking today, uh, continuing in the book of Revelation. So if you have a Bible, I would encourage you to get that or a device you'd like to follow along in. We're actually going to be in Revelation chapter 2. So last, last week, um, Marvin opened up the book of Revelation in uh, chapter 1, talking about our growing in our beloved identity. And I just want to encourage you, if you did not hear that, you got to hear it. I say that every time, but it's true. I, I never say that ingenuinely. If you didn't hear the message, you need to hear it. Like, the Lord is, is always speaking to us. But so um, the, the book of Revelation is more, most specifically the book outlining the time of Jesus' return uh, more than any other, but there's actually 150 chapters in the scripture that reference the time of Jesus' return and his coming kingdom. We've got actually all that on the, the foyer desk out there. But Jesus is coming. The, the book of Revelation is a gift to us, not to be afraid of, but to open our eyes to his reality. And right now, as Jesus prepares to return, the Holy Spirit is doing something. Do you know what he's doing? He's preparing a bride for Jesus, a people fully committed and wholly in love with Jesus the Son, us. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing. You ever wonder, what's God doing in my life? He's preparing you to be married to Jesus forever. That's what he's doing. He's conforming you to his image so that you'll be equally yoked in him, with him in love forever. That's the work God's up to in your life. Suddenly everything makes sense, right? Uh, and the Father will present us a worthy bride to his son as a glorious eternal gift. We will be prepared, made holy. This is us. And this is the work of God in this season, and it is glorious. So I'm going to do a couple things today. I want to give you a quick intro, although we've already jumped in last week, to the book of Revelation, just so you have understanding. And then I'm going to give you a quick intro to what uh, chapters 2 and 3 are all about, and then we're just going to look at one slice. Okay, so um, the book of Revelation is a gift, as I said, to us because it reveals Jesus. How do I know? Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 says it. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? It is the revealing of Jesus. What do you think of when you think of the book of Revelation? If it's not that it reveals Jesus, then you, got, you, you have a lesser idea of what the book of Revelation is. 
So the first verse, this, this book of Revelation is the revelation of Jesus. What that means is a revealing. It shows us who he is, the beauty of his heart, and the beauty of who he is, and the beauty of his leadership, and then secondarily reveals his plan. So the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, that's us, what must soon take, take place. So it's first the revealing of Jesus, it's second the revealing of his plan unto his return. It's a revealing, um, and so as we jump in today, I want to pray for us that we'd have the spirit of revelation, that God would open our eyes spiritually to see Jesus today, amen? Father, as we come to your word, we ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that by the Holy Spirit, you would open the eyes of our heart. To, to see you, to comprehend you, to encounter you as you are even in this room right now. God, you'd open the ears of our spirit to hear your word, not by human beings, but by means of the Holy Spirit. If you agree, say amen. Amen. So the book of Revelation, it's simply that. It's the revealing of Jesus. And, and as we're going through it, and anytime you read it, I just want to encourage you, as you read it, if you're, especially if you start getting down bunny trails or confused about the meaning, just, just stop, back up, and this will be the question I'll encourage you as we continue through it, because we're going to go all through this book in the next few weeks, is to back up and say, well, what do I see about Jesus? There's bulls, there's trumpets, there's plagues, there's, there's the Babylon, there's the dragon, there's the woman. Hold up. What do you see about Jesus? Because that's what it's all about, okay? So the book of Revelation shouldn't be scary. It is a gift to you. And we're, again, we're going to unlock it. So um, actually in the first three chapters, verse chapter 1, chapter 2 and 3 we'll be looking in today, um, it gives 30 at least 30 specific descriptions of Jesus, his majesty, his ministry, his personality, whether it be the first and the last, his eyes like flames of fire, his head like wool, and every one of them is significant. They're not there by accident. They're not just making poetry. He's not just putting together artworks to be like, oh, that's cool. They mean something to us. Every one of the revelations, the revealings of his nature to us are to equip us as his people to walk faithfully in the hour that we're living and to empower us to overcome in the, the days up to his return. So we want to do a deep dive. You want to do a deep dive into all those. And you're like, what do they mean? Well, I'll give you this clue too. Again, we're going to unwrap them as we go. We'll be looking at one or two today, but I would encourage you to read the book for yourself. Make a list for yourself, and here's the key. I want you equipped. You don't need to depend on me. You have the Holy Spirit, and you have the Word of God. The way to interpret the Word of God, the way to interpret the book of Revelation is with the Word of God. <laughs> well, what does it mean that he has a head that's white like, like snow? Well, what does that mean biblically? Where do you see that other places in the Bible? What does it represent? And, and you will have your key. The Holy Spirit will help you. Again, we're going to look at one or two of those today. Again, giving you a quick overview of how to approach this book. Um, okay, so that's, that's book one, is the introduction. Jesus shows up to John, and then at the end of chapter one, again, Marvin talked about it last week, so we're going to chapter two. He says, now write down what I'm about to say to the churches. So chapters two and three make a turn, and that's where we're going to be today. Again, told you what I'm going to do. That's what we're doing. Chapters 2 and 3 are seven specific letters, or you may understand scripturally the word epistle. 
um, to the churches that are in Asia Minor at the day when, when John is writing. John the Beloved, get this vision of Jesus. Jesus says, write this down. I have something to say to my beloved, write it down to the seven churches. And so chapter two and three include these seven letters to seven different churches. They were real churches in real time with real issues that he was really speaking to in the year 90 AD when this was written, okay? So this was, this was for them, it was for then. But just as you would read today, how many of you were to read today the book written to the church in Ephesus, we call Ephesians. How many of you read that and understand it applies to your life today, right? Philippians, the church of Philippi, Colossians, the, to the, okay. So we understand when God writes his word, those were to real churches at real time. It was really to Philippi when Paul wrote it. It was really to Ephesus when Paul wrote it. But we read it today knowing that it is living truth for us today, amen? And so as he's speaking to seven real churches and seven real time with seven real issues, we understand that it's speaking to us today. In fact, I would say there's a reason why these are included in the revelation of Jesus to tell his servants what is to come that makes these all the more applicable in the day in which he returned. Now, almost every revelation of prophecy that God gives, again, I've, I've talked about this before, has a immediate an ongoing and a final application. And you can see that with the Holy Spirit, the life of Jesus, so many of his promises. And so what he spoke to them, uh, you know, as we're going to read today about the church in Ephesus, um, was relevant to them in 90 AD. And it's been relevant to the church since then. And it will be finally relevant in the most um, consummated way in the hours just before Jesus returns. And that may be now. So um, each of these letters have a form, even as Paul's letters, if you've ever read them, have a form. There's a greeting, a prayer, you know, there's a instruction, there's answer to the question, then there's a blessing and a final greeting. Those are Paul's letters. So Jesus is writing from his own mouth to John's pen these letters. Like if, if you have a red letter Bible, these would all be in red. Like Paul's letters weren't that. These are red letter, uh, red, red letter letters. <laughs> um, from Jesus, and they have a form to them. All seven of them follow this, this form. It's a literary form of a letter. And so Jesus greets the church, and each one of them has a specific historical context, which may or, not be, may, may or may not be written in the letter, but is relevant to the message. Each one has a specific revelation of Jesus, and most of them are found in chapter 1, where Jesus is revealed, and there's all these characteristics listed. It's interesting and anointed that Jesus uses specific ones to speak to specific churches. And he's not just drawing out of his grab bag. He's like, oh, how should I introduce myself to the church at Ephesus? No, he's telling them specifically what they need to hear, what they need to see about him in this date, place, and time what they need to see to equip them for, the, for what they are going through. So there's a revelation of Jesus starts each letter. There's an affirmation of faithfulness. Jesus will um, tell them, church in this city, this is what I love about you. This is what you're doing so good. I love, love, love this about you. And most of them have an affirmation, something or some things that Jesus affirms. And then there's usually a correction for compromise. Now there's one or two that have no affirmation. That's scary. And then there's one or two that have no correction, which is amazing. 
Um, but most of them, most of these seven epistles have an affirmation for their faithfulness and a correction for their compromise. And then Jesus gives them a call to respond. Here's what you need to do in light of what's happening and where you are right now. And then he gives a promise, an eternal reward. To those who listen, who obey, who do what I'm asking you in this city, in this time, in your church, there is a reward for you. I love that Jesus is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him. And we don't need to be ashamed of that. He gives us rewards because he knows we're motivated by rewards. Oh, I don't need any rewards from Jesus. Yes, you do. He didn't offer them to you because he didn't think you needed it. He offered them to you because you need it. You need to know what's on the other side. You can put in a hard day's work if you know you're getting a paycheck on the other side. Am I right? And so he gives a promise to the overcomers. And the cool thing about his promises to overcomers, again, I'm just talking high level before we dive into one today, is that they are eternal rewards. Now, Jesus blesses us for faithfulness in the here and now. When we walk according to his word, we will experience blessing. Don't be shy about it. I know walking in God's way is the best way. It is. When you walk according to his word, you save yourself from a million regrets and a million problems. Not all your problems, but a million problems. That, that rebelling against his word or sinning is what we call it, will bring problems into your life. I mean, you, how many of you experienced that? Okay. So I love that he blesses us in real time, but what he's offering to the churches when they respond to his word in, in this time are eternal rewards, meaning it's not just for the breath of life we have for the next you know, a few decades, and then you go into the grave, what he's offering will be with you forever. In response to faithful obedience to his loving words are, some, are things we will experience blessing for eternity. That's billions of billions of billions of billions of unending years with cumulative interest on the blessing. Like, it just gets, keeps getting better. I mean, that should be motivating. And I want to tell you this, um, as we dive into the book of Revelation in, in these words, I went through all that really quick on purpose, but, and, and I'll put these notes out as well, because I'm going to load a lot on you, so that you can look through these. We're not going to be able to go through all these letters to all these churches. I know we won't. We'll look at a few. Um, we're looking at one today. But I want you equipped to, to dig through them on your own, to hear from the Lord on your own, Amen. But, but again, before you, and I want you to see that it's, it's, it's relevant to your life right now. We've gone through Revelation in different seasons. Actually, as I was preparing for today, I'm like, we literally talked about this two years ago in 2020, and I had forgotten. Um, um, and uh, we go through it often, but I, I've had people at different times when we dive into the book of Revelation, they say, but it's just so, it's, it just doesn't seem relevant to my life. I want to tell you there is nothing more relevant to your life than the revelation of Jesus. There's nothing more lasting, more true, or meaningful than the revelation of Jesus. And there are a lot of things that are true. And there's a lot of things that are good. There's a lot of messages that could be relevant. But in light of who Jesus is and in light of the fact that we will live eternally, there's nothing more relevant than these words. Amen? So we're, what we're seeing as Jesus begins to speak to each of these different churches is the revelation of his heart for his beloved. And even when he comes with correction, when he comes with rebuke, you have to understand it comes from a heart of the one who is more committed in love to you 
than any other person that's ever lived. Jesus loves you more than any other person. It's not Jesus getting mad with a whip to, to shame you. It's the words of love. And I heard somebody talking about this, like, we discipline the ones we love, right? We bring correction and reproof to the ones we love because we care about them. You know, I, I can't, I don't discipline my neighbor's kids. I can't, I shouldn't. But they're not my responsibility, and let's be honest, I don't love them that way. And I can look and say, like, what they're doing is wrong, but it's not my place. But you know where it is my place? In my home, with my kids, to discipline them because it's my assignment to love them well. (laughs) It's my assignment to raise them in love, and if I didn't love them, I wouldn't discipline them. I'd let them make poor decisions and destroy their lives. We discipline the one we love, and this is scriptural. The, the father disciplines those he corrects and, and accepts as sons and daughters. And so when the correction, whether it's today through this word or in your own life, the conviction of the Holy Spirit comes to you, we should never feel condemned or shamed. We should say, thank you, Father, for loving me. Your rebuke is a gift, and the opportunity to repent is a gift. His correction is his words of love. If he didn't care, he wouldn't bother. He would let us self-destruct. Thank you, Father, for loving us. So we're going to read now in Revelation chapter 2, jumping right in. We're just reading the first epistle to the church in Ephesus, and then we're going to unpack it a little bit. So to the angel, or the messenger, is actually the word there, of the church in Ephesus, write this. I'm going to read this whole section from verse 1 through 7. And it's Jesus talking to the angel, the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Are you noticing the outline, the structure here? I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you've found them to be false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That's the big Jesus hug and high five to the church at Ephesus. Verse four, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Verse 6, but you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Again, Jesus speaking. Verse 7, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the one who is victorious promise of reward, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, so that's the whole thing. Now we're going to go back and unpack it. Hopefully you saw the outline that I just described to you, but I want to start, I want to start at the the back end of what we just read. Um, First of all, in, in the hour before Jesus returns, it's going to be a tumultuous time. And I love that the, per, the person that Jesus speaks to in the hour of crisis, when he sees the planet and that's all that's going on, the person he speaks to is his church, his bride, his people. Um, 
Does he not love the rest of the world? Yes, it's because he loves the world that he speaks first to the heart of his church. Because his church is the light, is his representative on the planet. He brings us into fellowship, relationship, love with him so that we can shine the light that the world can see so that his love is known in the earth. But he speaks to the church, but he begins each of these by saying this thing, who has an ear to hear? Verse 7, let him hear. And this was a common phrase that Jesus said. Um, and there are three implications to it. And I would just want to shout out to Mike Bickle for a lot of this info. I didn't come up with this on my own. But this is a common statement that Jesus had made, and he makes here during his earthly ministry, but now by the Spirit to John the Beloved said, let him who has an ear, hears what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So there's, there's three implications to this, that it's not just about having a natural ear to hear. How many know you can hear something and not really be listening? We've all been there. Husbands, wives, don't point. Um, but, this, but it's Jesus's way of saying this is so important. Stop. Listen, but also that um, I love the, the, how the phrasing here goes. Let he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And that it's individual and corporate because he speaks first to the one, to the he or the she. Whoever is listening right now, whoever has ears on, on their body right now, let your ears hear because I'm speaking to you as an individual, but what I'm speaking is to the church. So it's our individual ears perked to what he's saying to all of us. And then third, that we need the help of the Holy Spirit. To truly hear the words of God, we have to have hearts softened and willing to respond. Otherwise, those words just hit us and fall off. But if our ears are opened by the Holy Spirit and our hearts are softened, we will pay careful attention and we will apply our lives to what he is saying. And that's why we prayed today. We started the word by prayer. Lord, help us. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to understand. Let us see and hear what you are saying. That's an ear to hear. So I start at the end. Now I'm going to give you historical context. And then we'll unwrap, unwrap what the Lord is saying. Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, uh, again, isn't here, but you can see in the book of Acts and to the book of Ephesians and kind of put these things together, was a capital city in this province of Asia Minor. And it was a financial center of that area. It was one of the largest cities and was also a center. I don't know if it's a center, but a center for idol worship. Um, there was a huge temple, I believe, to the goddess Diana there um, that people come, would come from far and wide to worship uh, the goddess Diana. So false idol worship and lots of money was in the city of Ephesus. Well, in the middle of this, this pagan city was one of the largest revivals of the day. And you can see in Acts chapter 19 and 20 that Paul established a church there on his missionary journeys, and there were great signs and wonders that established it, and thousands came into the kingdom. So the church at Ephesus was probably, in this day and when this is written, like the happening place. Like, it was the revival center. Like, if they were around today, they'd be the ones who were listening to the podcasts, were buying their albums and their books and worshiping to the songs that they wrote. That was the church in Ephesus. It was happening. It was hopping. It was the place. And, and it said even that through the, the church in Ephesus, that all who dwelt in Asia, that, that, that 
province heard the word of the Lord. So they were evangelistically energized and faithful. The Holy Spirit was working in power. It was the place, okay? Just so you understand who he's speaking to in this. Um, and that's kind of the historical background, and there's more that could be said. But I want to get to what he had to say to them. Now that you have a picture painted in your mind, now you understand where Jesus is coming from. You understand what he's speaking to in the city of Ephesus, and look at this bit by bit. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, um, and I highlighted the angel there uh, is another word for messenger, because it's interchangeable in the New Testament. And I want to take it as messenger that he's speaking to the leaders of his churches when he says to the angel. He's speaking to the messenger, the leaders of the church. These are the words of him, and he's speaking of himself. Jesus says, the, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. Now, again, if you haven't read chapter one, you're like, what does that mean? And it's not a mystery. Jesus explained it in chapter one. He said the seven golden lampstands are the churches. Okay, okay, one symbol defined. And the, the stars represent the leaders of the churches. So the revelation Jesus brings when he's speaking to the church of Ephesus, again, not a random grab out of the bag. He's like, what I want you to know about me, church at Ephesus, is that I'm holding your leaders in my hands. What I want you to know about me, church at Ephesus, is I'm walking in your midst. I'm with you. I'm in your midst. I'm dwelling among you. You need to know how close I am to you. And that's a good word, isn't it? I like to remind myself of that. Sometimes when I'm here at the church, or um, if I'm really aware on Sunday morning, but usually my mind's everywhere. But I'm here in the church and no one else is here. I walk around I'm like, this is what you do, Jesus. You're walking among us. You're looking us in the eyes. You're touching our hearts and we don't even know it. The church in Ephesus apparently needed to know that he was the one. How many of you know you can be faithful in times of of challenge and crisis and faithful in your walking with Jesus, but sometimes it's so easy to imagine that he's just far away. We get the idea that he's somewhere over there. And even in our prayer, we're like, hey, Jesus, can you help? You know, we think we have to call him, you know, from down in pasture. He's like, no, no, you need to know I'm, the one. I'm with you. I'm holding you in my hand, and I'm walking among you. And they needed to hear that. You know what? We need to hear that in this, in this season. And, that, that when it set, and so the lampstands are the churches. Obviously, they are his light to the world. And he's walking among his churches. The stars are his leaders who shine his light. And they're in his hand. And he's emphasizing his tender care and commitment to help us and to be among us that we're not doing this on our own. Isn't that so good? His presence is with us. And he wants to help us in the hour we live, in the culture we live, to shine bright. You know, when I think of the church at Ephesus, I see similarities. Let's keep going, though. So he affirmed their faithfulness to be diligent in ministering to others and their perseverance to stand for truth. I'm just read that, verse 2. He says to them, I know your works, your labor, your patience, your perseverance, that you can't bear with those who are evil. You've tested those who say they're apostles and are not. You've found them to be liars, and you've persevered. You have labored for my namesake and have not become 
weary. And then in verse 6, he also says, you also have this, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And so he's affirming them. You have stood firm. You've worked faithfully. You worked diligently. He's like, I love that. I mean, how many of you think if you're in the middle of a very wicked pagan city where people are coming from all around to worship false gods, that it's a, a work of the spirit and a work of perseverance to stand for truth? It was for them. Well, let's put it in our context. You know, we don't have in our current American context necessarily temples built to idols where people go down and bow and worship. But how many of you would say that in our nation, our culture has a lot of idol worship? And it can be tough in the midst of a culture. And I would say, like Ephesus being a cultural center for Asia Minor, the, the nation of the United States is a cultural center for the world. And we have influenced the world in, in ways with our culture to influence them towards idol worship. But I will say, I believe, like the church at Ephesus, the church in the United States, for the most part, has stood for truth has persevered on the word of God, have persevered for what is right, this is right, and we will stand for what is right. Haven't always done it well, haven't always got it 100% right, but for the most part, the American church has a great stance on truth. We understand the word of God. Now, I'll have to say in the last few years, I've seen some of that crumble, but at its core, when people think of church in America, they understand we are a people of conviction about what God's word says. Amen? And Jesus says, I love that. And the church in America has labored hard to share the word of God. We've exported missionaries to the world. We, I think in many ways, we, we are in this, we are in the lines of this book. And, and to what he's speaking to, to the, the Ephesian church. And I love that. And that we can relate to that. And we understand that. It says you can't bear the, those who are evil. You're not tolerating those who are false, and you hate the deeds of Nic the Nicolaitans. Now, that needs some explanation. I'll just talk about it so you, you feel like you understand it. There is reference to it possibly in Acts chapter 6, but the common view uh, is that there was a deacon or a leader in the church named Nicholas who was espousing this view that um, if you had faith in Jesus, you could do whatever you want. It was the extreme of Christian liberty. Like, you're forgiven, doesn't matter, live however you want. It was sort of a, like, what we've, we would call in our recent, recent days, a sort of a slippery grace kind of message. And he says, I hate that. Don't tolerate that. I hate that. And so they were standing against a similar view in the early church that had this over, overemphasized view of liberty and grace. We, we are, that isn't liberty at all, by the way. <laughs> liberty in Jesus is to be free of sin. Sin is a slave holder, and it will bind you up to slavery. There's, there's no freedom in sin. Sin is slavery. Freedom is walking with Jesus and walking free. Amen? But then he, so then he goes on to correct their compromise. Now, this isn't at all like, you're great, but it was, you guys are doing awesome in all of this, and I love it, but I want to speak correction to this. And that's what he goes on to say in, in the next, next verses. Verse 4, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. So Jesus corrects them for neglecting their call to love, to loving devotion to him. And apparently, in the earlier days of the church of Ephesus, it was clear that they were fully in love. They were 
devoted in love. They were passionate in devotion to Jesus because he calls them to return to it. It says, return to the love you had at first. Now see, because doctrinal purity and service are very important, and they are to be adhered to, championed, held on to, but they cannot replace a heart of fullness, a wholehearted love and devotion to Jesus. But that's what we're tempted to do if we think that God is somehow far away. It can become easy to stand on doctrine and dogma and stand for truth and champion the truth if we forget that he's walking in our midst. If we forget that he's holding us in our hands, then we just have to grit our teeth and stand true to the truth. Because we're, we don't know where he is right now. And Jesus says, but I'm, I'm walking in your midst. I'm holding you in my hands. Don't neglect the love you had at first. Don't give yourself to the easy thing just because it feels like I'm not with you. Because I'm with you. I'm still here. I didn't leave. I'm still holding you. And it's a redemptive rebuke to them to not go through the motions of piety and neglect the presence of God in their midst. And I believe for the American church, this is a word. We've held fast to the truth, but many times maybe we've neglected his presence in our midst. We've become unaware of how near he is, and so we give ourselves to the easy thing of standing on the truth, standing with dogma, championing what's right and true, and it's not wrong, it's right. But the most important thing will always be the most important thing. And Jesus said, I need you to keep first things first. What's the first thing? It's the first and greatest commandment. The commandment to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength will always be the first and greatest priority of God himself. His greatest desire for us isn't that we would live faithfully. His greatest desire for us is that we'd be a people in love a people of love. His highest calling for us isn't that we would do all the right things. His highest calling for us is that we'd be a people in love, responding to who he is. And so this is very important to him because then he goes on to say, if you don't correct this area and make love the first thing, you will lose your light. And it hearkens us back to what we talked about two weeks ago in Matthew 25, the wise and foolish virgins. And it says that the wise had oil in their lamp, the oil of intimacy. They had prioritized relationship with God and intimacy with God above all the other externals. And so when the dark night came and the darkness was longer than everyone expected it to, they still had a light and they were ready to meet Jesus when he came back. That was wisdom. And it was because first things were first. And so Jesus called to the, the church in Ephesus and the call to us in the hour we live. If we believe Jesus is coming soon, if we feel like darkness is covering the earth and thick darkness of people, is to give ourselves to the first things first. 
to be a people of intimacy and love for God, love with God, gathering oil in the day that we live so that we have a light, so our light will not be removed. Essentially what he's saying, if all you do is give yourself to the truth, standing for truth, but you don't give yourself to the first things first, there will come a day where your light is snuffed out. You have no light for the world. Though you stood for truth, you missed me. And the end of that matter they weren't there. I don't think we're there yet. But the, the end of that matter, if you stay on that road, is Pharisaism. And the Pharisees knew the word. They knew the truth. They stood for truth. They were the, the beacons of truth and the benchmarks of truth. But they missed Jesus. We don't want to have the truth but not have Jesus. Because he is the truth. He is the way. He is the truth. And so he calls them back. He said, I love this, but we have to have this. We have to have first love. And how does he inspire it in us? By showing us who he is. It's not drum up love on your own. It's I'm going to show you that I'm with you. I'm going to speak my loving words to you. I'm going to give you a book that reveals my, me to you so that when you see me with the eyes of your heart, the most natural response is to love me back. You know, and God isn't calling us to do anything that he hasn't done already. Why does God say the greatest desire of his heart is that we would love him with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength? Do you know why? Because that's how he loves us. He has already chosen and already given himself fully to love us with all of his heart. He loves us with all of his mind. He loves us with all of his soul and all of his strength. Now, let me just unpack that for you because I want it to strike your heart so that you can see it, and so that your heart will respond in kind. Because again, you're not going to love God first. You have to see that he loves you first. All of his heart, all of his soul, all of his mind, and all of his strength. What does it mean for, to him to love us with all of his heart? It means that everything he feels is motivated by love for you. That's his heart. His, his mind is that all of his thoughts are directed towards you. He loves us with all of his mind, all of his soul. The soul represents our will, our decision-making. All that he wills for us is in love. All that he wills for us is for our good. And in all of his mind, everything he thinks about us, I think I said this, everything he thinks about us is love. Every thought he has about you is how much he loves you, and motivated by love. And then his strength are his actions, that everything he does, every move he makes, every step he takes, there's a song there somewhere, <laughs> is motivated by love. And you need to see that. And you need to read the scripture that way. You need to read the, the, the testimony of your life that way. When this happened, when God said that, when God moved in this way, it was all because of love. That's the narrative. And so then when we see it, we're called to respond the same, that everything in our heart we turned to loving him. That what we feel about God in our heart is love, love, love. That what, what we think in our mind about God is love. What we choose to do with our will is to obey him in love. And how we choose to act towards him and toward the world around us is a reflection of our love for God. And you know what? We were made for this. 
When we are made in the image and likeness of God, we are made to be wholehearted creatures just like him. We all long to give ourselves wholeheartedly to something or someone. Do you know why? Because you are made for him. You are made by him. You are made like him. So this calling isn't like, oh, you know, I'm so bad. I got to get it right. He's like, I want to get you in line with what you were made for. I want to bring you back to what you're created for. The most natural thing in the world for a redeemed human who knows the Lord is just to love him back. And it's the trials and tribulations and the lies of the enemy that take us away from that. In Matthew 25, it's so relevant, I need to wrap this up. And we read this a couple weeks ago, but it's been reminded to me every time I've been opening up the news, I talked about that when I opened the message, is lawlessness. Because of the increase of lawlessness, the love of many will grow cold. The the response of our flesh as lawlessness increases will be to grow cold, but the response of the Spirit of God in us is for our love for Him to grow stronger. And it's supernatural. It's what we're called to. The one who stands firm in him, in love, to the end will be saved, and the gospel of the kingdom will go forth through a people wholehearted in love. It is the only solution for the hour we are in, is to say yes to the first things first, yes to the first commandment, returning to our first love. And he calls them to return and remember, and we all have If you know the Lord, you have a remembrance of the moments of your life where the love for him was hot, when the love for him was true, when it was pure, before the cares of this world began to distract you and the lies of the enemy tried to tear you down, that pure devotion, the Lord says, I want you to remember that because it wasn't just for them. That's your full-time reality, to live in that same love. To live in that. And it's a miracle. It's a work of the Holy Spirit for people to grow in love when wickedness is raging in the world. But that's what he's doing in you and me. Did you know that? That's what he's doing. First, love should be our occupation. And when first love for Jesus is our primary occupation... It drowns out every other preoccupation. If you're struggling with sin, you need to get occupied with loving Jesus, which sometimes is counterintuitive. We think we need to drop our boxing mitts, fight that sin, fight that sin. If you make loving Jesus your primary application, it will drown out the desire for sin. It will drown out the attraction for sin. It will drown out fear and anxiety and the cares of this life. So it will be drowned out if you make first love your primary application, occupation. It will drown out every other preoccupation. It's true. God's raising up in us a first love revolution. We're not just giving allegiance to words on a page, but we are in love with the author. Simple devotion to Jesus. If you can think back to 
oh, I remember the times when the Lord says, let's go back. Let's do that again. I remember the times when I was in the word and it was so rich. The Lord says, can we do that again? I remember the times when I prayed and I just sensed your presence. He says, can we do that again? Return, remember, repent. Let's stand and end together. Justin, if you can come on up. Can you just imagine it? Don't you love the, the thought of Jesus walking among us even now? Just, just walk in these aisles, walk in this room. Because he's here. He, he is doing it. And, and that he's speaking to us. That he's so present. I was comforted with this thought even as I was preparing, you know, that at the end of the day, Jesus' evaluation of us will not be, how big was your church? Not that it's bad to be big, but his evaluation won't be, how much influence did you have? Hopefully we'll have lots of influence by the grace of God. His evaluation will be, how big was your heart for me? How faithful were you to love me with all that you had? How did you steward your heart in the hour that you lived? That will be his evaluation of us. And he is cultivating pure love in our hearts. He's giving us opportunity to repent, to return, to be restored. Amen? So that we can be a lampstand until the day of his return. We want to say yes to that. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are with us, that you're for us, that...